Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. I'm Yulia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined by my colleagues. Giselle Donnelly, I'm a senior fellow at AEI, and... Dalibur Rohaj, also with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, as always, consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Today, we have um, with us as our guest, Rim Gifanov, who is the director of Radio Free Europe's Tatar Bashkir service, just in time as the new probably new um, defense minister of Ukraine has been nominated and maybe today, uh, September 5th, appointed Rim Gilfanov, who is also a Tatar, a Crimean Tatar. So um, I think a lot of our audience will be confused, Rim. And so I want to ask you a very broad question about what are Tatars? Why the Tatar Bashkir service? How is Tatarstan uh, uh, different from Crimean Tatar? I grew up with one of my best friends who's a Romanian Tatar. Some Tatars or some people around the Black Sea region see the Tatars as, as some of the um, OG, the original people. <laughs> You've been around since uh, at least the 13th century um, around the region. So tell us a little bit about what Tatars are and how we can understand the geographic and the cultural and social connections among Tatars um, right now in the region. First of all, I would like to thank you all for inviting me for this podcast and I'm really delighted to meet all of you, though, virtually. Yes, uh, I would say, I would start with the Tatars, the name of the Tatars is actually umbrella name. It unites different ethnic group actually. Uh, because uh, we used to be one ethnic group, well, there was no ethnicity at that time, but I mean, just cultural unity in several centuries ago used to be one, uh, even one state called the Golden Horde. But now, given the new developments in this huge territory called Eurasia, as different other states appeared on the on that space, uh, for example, Russian Empire, which made us separate. So Kazan Tatars uh, went; uh, they had their own development, own history under the Russian Empire, and the Crimean Tatars had another. They first were very close the Ottoman Turkey and then also were annexed first time uh, by Russians uh, 200 years ago. So since that, uh, this uh, development, uh, the growth of these ethnicities went separately and differently. So now, so, I mean, we still have the name Tatar in our names, the word Tatar, but the, in terms of uh, language, in terms of traditions, uh, in terms of political history, uh, we are quite different. The Arifirel's Tatar Bashkir desk actually one of the oldest services and was uh, organized uh, in 1953 in December, by the way, we will have our 70 years anniversary in December. And what is interesting, it was in, uh, 
from the beginning was I mean created as a separate independent entity not under the Russian service as Russian immigrant circles demanded at the time but the service uh, has been working separately and uh, and what is interesting also the Crimean Tatar language wasn't among the languages mandated by Congress by US Congress but nevertheless we uh, remembering their fate their rather sad fate uh, uh, under Stalinistic regime uh, uh, you probably know that the Crimean Tatar, the entire population of Crimean Tatar population in the Crimean Peninsula was uh, deported by Stalin in 1944 under false accusations uh, that they were co collaborating with Nazis in, in Crimea and uh, not only Crimean Tatars had that, that fate but uh, many of them were rehabilitated uh, after Stalin's death but never Crimean Tatars so they started their fighting uh, to return to the homeland in uh, 60s first and then with the Perestroika era actually the demonstrations by Crimean Tatars on the Red Square I, I would say started all this freedom movement in former Soviet Union in the territory they just came to Moscow and uh, organized demonstration in Red Square demanding them, demanding from the Soviet leadership at the time, so they uh, let them back in their homeland. And then uh, the, uh, it, it all started the process of uh, repatriation by themselves. It was never organized by the state, by the way. The state just ignored uh, Russian state uh, as uh, Soviet Union collapsed and, and, and I would say and by Ukrainian state as well so all those uh, achievements Crimean Tatars had uh, in Crimea till Russian annexation it's all by done by their you know poor enthusiasm just to get back to the homeland and uh, on the other hand, that makes them very, very uh, active politically. So it's it was very tight, a united community, united with one I mean, wish to get back home, with high spirit, and it still works. And the Crimean Tatar community, both in occupied uh, peninsula and uh, in Ukraine as well, they are very politically, I would say, influential which uh, the latest uh, developments in Ukraine also show and uh, he already mentioned that the new defense minister of Ukraine is expected to be Crimean Tatar, ethnic Crimean Tatar now. And back to the radios, uh, we never had the Crimean Tatar as a broadcast language but nevertheless we had uh, our some segments in Crimean Tatar and they started in 60s and then uh, as Perestroika came, we even organized, uh, uh, found an affiliate in Crimea and had twice weekly Crimean Tatar segments of broadcasting over there. And then, unfortunately for us, but fortunately for Crimean Tatar community, uh, after second annexation happened in 2014, the Crimean desk actually went to under Ukrainian 
service here and they have uh, the spe special project called Crimea Realities and it's, it's uh, our colleagues working there they are pretty much uh, a very active and very uh, providing independent compre comprehensive news to the occupied territories over there so briefly about Tatars I would say this so you said um, that Tatar is essentially an umbrella term for number of different groups around the Black Sea and 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 further uh, into into sort of the deeper parts of Russia, if you, if you will. Nonetheless, to what extent do you think it makes sense to think of Tatars as of a distinct and somewhat sort of coherent group with a sense of kinship, solidarity, community that extends beyond these national borders that exist in the region? To what extent, you know, Ukrainian, Romanian and Russian Tatars would would sort of feel as as part of the of the same community. The reason I'm asking is is partly because obviously Tatars have been moved around a lot by by the Soviet regime, including I mean, the family of of Rustan Umerov, the the new Ukrainian uh, defense minister, whose family I believe returned to Crimea only in the 1990s. And and so after 2014, I wonder, you know, to what extent, especially the plight of uh, Crimean Tatars, has a resonance. Uh, in other parts of the Tatar community? I mean, to what extent you can sort of gauge you know, a sense of outrage or, 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 or concern among you know, Tatars you know, living in, still living in Russia, who might not be able to sort of express their concerns freely, but, but who might still uh, be acutely aware of, of what's happening and, 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 and the injustice of it all. And if I can just briefly add to that, maybe you can mention Turkey here because Erdogan himself, but, but generally Turkey has sort of taken on the plight, at least rhetorically, of the Crimean Tatars. There's many Tatars in Turkey, but that's a very politically fraught and complicated relationship too. I see you smiling, Rim, so. I have a footnote too. Because I wanted to ask particularly about the Kazan Tatars, you know, which, did, I mean, have been Russified for a long time. It's, and it is, like, I, to understand the differences between the Kazan Tatars, who are still a majority population of that substantially large and, I think, pretty Russian city, I'm wondering whether the question that Dalibor asked about the sympathy uh, amongst Tatar people transcends the, the distance and the different historical past that uh, Crimean had that, or even the sort of Tatar diaspora, if you can even call it that, the, the far-flung elements and uh, the capital of Tatarstan. <laughs> you know, the people, the residents of Kazan or, or, or like I say, seem to be very Russified. It's, it's, I mean, it's important to, to mention that the Kazan Tatars as a community, they are also pretty much strong. And uh, probably, again, you heard about the case of Tatarstan as the Perestroika started, the, there was a big wave of revival, big ethnic movements appeared claiming, they first started claiming for Tatarstan a, a union republic status. If you know the history of Soviet Union, there were 15 unions, republics over there, which had much more power, availability to develop the culture, traditions, language, and they were 
so-called autonomic republics, which were almost uh, on the level of Russian oblast, Russian regions over there. So Tatarstan wasn't given its its complete in enclave uh, inside the Russian Federation. It was granted only autonomy, and the Tatar population suffered pretty much because of that. We, we didn't have our academy, for example, we didn't produce any movies, though Union Republics has the rights to produce movies, and we were very pretty much limited in publishing magazines, newspapers in Tatar, the education was limited in Tatar, there were no high schools in Tatar, that kind of things, and that made a huge revival moment in at the end of 80s and then Tatarstan declared their sovereignty in 1990 first among the eth uh, other ethnicities in Russia and they were even attempt to proclaim announce an independence from Russia but again given the uh, the Tatarstan has no other borders but with Russia only. So the Tatarstan elite uh, decided just to make a tre treaty between Moscow and Kazan about the subcertain of autonomy. And uh, they had rather good uh, conditions, I mean, uh, to develop, to grow not only economy, but also to nourish some kind of ethnic, uh, to solve ethnic issues over there. A lot of Tatar schools were open, uh, Tatar satellite TV appeared finally, so Tatar, Tatarstan radio started broadcasting in Tatar for other Tatars abroad, which is interesting, I mean, for decades, uh, that Tatar service of RFRL was the only international media in Tatar, and uh, that's all thanks to US, and it was taken as a uh, as a U.S. soft power tool, because it showed that while Soviet authorities ignored all the demands by Tatars to cultivate their culture, actually U.S. only U.S. provided a tool to uh, to Tatars abroad or, or worldwide broadcasts or programs in Tatar. Uh, it, it's really it still continues this way, and many Tat I mean many Tatar intellectuals consider this uh, as a big. Uh, they are thankful for American government to keeping the work of the Tatar service uh, at RFRL. So we have now uh, Kazan Tatars, which are showed their will to more well, for wider autonomy. But at the same time, as Putin came to power, it he, he started uh, to limit again. So. The, the the balance went the other way. Uh, first, they started. Uh, there was a big movement in Tatarstan to return back to Latin alphabet, because not Cyrillic. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's number one Turkey. advantage. <laughs> not Cyrillic. No, no, because Cyrillic. Cyrillic, Cyrillic was inter introduced, I mean, by Stalin, uh, just to make the Russification much easier for them. So other Turkic alphabets, uh, first of all, Turkey, of course, and it's admitted by uh, 
Turkic intellectuals that the Latin is more comfortable for Turkic language actually, not only for Turkish but for all Turkic like Uzbek or Az Azeri, which they are going this way actually now in Azeri for example or Uzbeks going and Kazakhstan thinking about the again going back to Latin. So uh, it was the first step. Then uh, they uh, Moscow refused to extend the, this treaty with Kazan. So again, the Tatarstan was slowly brought back uh, to the level of uh, Russian oblast. Power structures like uh, interior or prosecutor offices or courts were again uh, subordinated to Moscow, to federal bodies. Then uh, Putin started attack on Tatar language, saying that it's not possible to give more hours to study any language than Russian, so Russian should be on first first place and the Russian prosecutor office literally started uh, hazing uh, Tatar language uh, teachers in Kazan many way fired and now we have ra a rather uh, sad situation of course uh, at the same time Tatars as a second ethnic minority at, behind Russians with very different culture, different religion, different language, they still keep their uh, ethnic identity. And in these terms, going back to your question about the, the common solidarity, um, on, on what kind of level it is, I would say it's like, it depends, it differs. Part of the population still thinks that we are the one nation, just separated by history. But in fact, uh, as I said, the differences are so many. Even experts consider Crimean Tatars as a separate ethnic group now, and the Crimean Tatar language as a separate language, which is, reflects the reality. But nevertheless, we still have this Turkic unity, which is inspired by Turkish uh, experience as well, with the, the Turkish support in this level. Of course, Crimean Tatars are taken as a, as a brother nation. So Crimean Tatars, the solidarity level with Crimean Tatars is rather uh, high. I can just give my own you know, memory. I used to be very active in, in th this new revival movement in 90s, before I joined Radio Free Europe. And uh, in 1990, there was an assistance group was formed in Kazan, uh, made of young people, students, who went to Crimea to help uh, Crimean Tatars over there uh, to build the, the houses for them, dwellings, and you know the kind of help which was uh, which shows the kind of you know unity, the kind of you know ties. They are still still there. So then maybe we can talk a little bit about what is happening in Tatarstan and in and around Kazan particularly. Um, I think very few people know, I'm, I'm now assuming that um, Kazan is, they do know that Kazan is a big city in, in uh, Russia, but um, little is known about its sort of cultural heritage, how much, um, uh, how many museums, universities, um, what kind of a cultural community there is now. The only thing that now draws it um, in kind of 
common uh, knowledge back to the war is our vague knowledge about the fact that different ethnic regions and different ethnic people in Russia have been particularly targeted when it comes to recruitment for the war. Um, and I know that uh, your service and a specific uh, media project um, that maybe you can tell us a little bit more about has been focusing on that too, uh, or has been primarily focusing on that. So can you take us back to February, March, the first few months of the full-scale invasion and give us a bit of a perspective of how big this problem of um, forced recruitment and forced mobilization has been throughout the one and a half years of the full-scale invasion and how the local communities, Tatars or not, um, in, in and around Kazan um, have been uh, reacting to that. To what extent we always want to hear about resistance, frankly, in Russia, there isn't too much. Um, and, so, um, and so can you tell us a little bit about that? I would say at this point the Tatarstan is coming back actually on the agenda even for international media because of the war and the hopes or potential that the, the war would affect the Russian state to the extent that the, the some regions will again start fighting for wider autonomy or even for independence. And there were already few so-called forums of free nations. They are so pretty much supported by Ukrainian government, of course. But also, uh, they had their gatherings, for example, in Prague or in Brussels. The last uh, forum was held in Tokyo, which is also interesting. I mean, uh, nobody would expect this. But the activities around this are pretty much going on. And uh, among those potential entities who would again reclaim their rights, uh, the Tatarstan is, I mean, on the first place. So the Tatarstan, uh, even in Russia, it was like kind of, you know, trade-off with the local elite that Moscow, one, from, on one hand, uh, Moscow wanted to limit the autonomy as much as possible. At the same time, they understood that it's not I mean, possible only just, you know, that you want this. They gave some privileges for, for the elite. For example, the Kazan was allowed to celebrate their thousand years since the, the foundation of Kazan in, in, the, in 2005. Then the World uh, uni uh, Student Games called Universiates uh, were also uh, held in Kazan in 2013. So the, the local elite kind of as a compensation for the taken sovereignty, they were given more money for local projects and for the corruption as well. I mean, nothing happens in Russia without this. So they, they were like, uh, the Putin found the, out the way how to corrupt them smartly. The Kazan is actually is called like a third capital now after Moscow and uh, St. Petersburg given it's, it was a really the capital of the Kazan Hanat and you know it has a really rich history and it was a very much developed city even during the Soviet times. The Kazan University is the actually the third oldest in Russia 
and it's famous it was famous by its oriental studies in during the Tsarist times and still keeps that potential you know to to be a great metropolitan and what is interesting it it also serves as a attractive still attractive for the regions around Tatarstan so Kazan considered to be a very prestigious city to to go to study or to to go to work now even again Putin's uh, tries to corrupt uh, locals uh, by promises and and even they, they implement actually like building a metro lines new metro lines over there or a great motorway from moscow to kazan and then further to the east which is very attractive for the local people because i mean infrastructure when the the whole world is developing and they they also want to match in this you know in this developments that's why i would say that even war didn't affect negatively that kind of plans some kind of constructions development uh, still going on there but otherwise uh, the, the war affected pretty much the uh, the mood of the population the the common s- sense you know what's going on that it would end not good that kind of things you know and in this we we try to as a as a media already we try to provide different kind of independent kind of news because the as as the war started i mean it was clear from the beginning as putin think came to power he started uh, to uh, taming the federal tv channels taking taking them all under his control but with the war it came so obvious it came so clear that they prefer to live to create then and to live their own alternative life alternative reality i would say the, where the black is white and white is black and you know truth is lie lie is truth and uh, in this we have our very unique specific niche and we are trying to enter the audience enter the this space pretty much close now we are announced foreign agent in russia our bureaus are closed uh, our people our freelancers even had to leave the country because they they are endangered over there Yulia already mentioned different projects we are now working on first of all i would mention here our uh, investigative data project you know immediately as russia uh, started the war in ukraine uh, our service has launched its own death list of russian losses uh, rightly expecting that the authorities would do anything to conceal the real casualties in Ukraine the initiative which started as a simple database now being turned to wider and systemic visual project showing real devastating scale of the losses mostly of young men but not only young men sons fathers husbands and uh, in our days the data journalism has become a powerful tool to reach this uh, audience because otherwise nobody would tell them or publish that kind of information uh, besides us uh, because i mean propaganda and pro governmental tv 
totally overwhelms the, the society over there. Many had stories, many heard stories about the even like family members differ with the views on the war and they cannot find any kind of, you know, common points to make them closer to each other. It's really, I don't want to go deeper about this, the, the state of society, why it happened, but uh, if the time allows we can go there, but otherwise the society is completely mm, twisted, I would say, in not only in terms of understanding the war, why it happened, why the people are going with the war uh, on Ukraine. And we only try to get, I mean, alternative information, which is not possible uh, on state media. And this project is one of them. Of course, those numbers, casualty numbers, are approximate. It's, it's not impossible to establish exact number of people who died or went missing during the war. Can, can you perhaps tell us a little bit more about how exactly you source this data? Uh, is it, it's probably not data on all Russian losses, right? It's, it's people from a certain region. And, and, and so, so how exactly you sort of go about you know, getting this, this information? I said that they are approximate, of course, and they, they are less than uh, the reality. But the problem is nobody knows this reality. I think even, even authorities, because there are so many uh, losses and the, the Russian side, they don't, don't care much about the losses. Even the, these bodies, I mean, dead bodies are left on the battlefield and they don't care to take them back. So we based on local reporting, on funerals, uh, on local media. It's not, uh, for example, maybe the federal media don't publish, don't speak about the particular concrete cases, but the local papers, on, on district papers, for example, or interviews with the families we sometimes do uh, through telephone lines official statements sometimes because they need some glorify the heroes of the war so we can track that kind of information from official statements and of course various posts on social networks which helps us pretty much uh, in, in this current situation because the people, they have very local limited audience, but if we go this group to these groups, uh, you can track. So many actually deaths happening and uh, the families uh, getting the bodies of their close relatives went to the war. And uh, it's also kind of not difficult to verify because you see the pictures, you see the graves so the the data gathering based mostly on that kind of sources if i could try to zoom back out to the uh, thirty thousand foot level a little bit it, it seems to me that the last few minutes of conversation go to the question of the nature of the russian state to a certain degree and it's sort of curiously brittle and fragile yet it has the appearance of strength but underneath the superstructure the suppression of peoples the degree to which its governance is based upon manipulation of the truth so on and so forth bespeaks 
a weakness. One of the great fears and uh, also a theme of the Ukraine, the Russo-Ukraine war, is a fear by Western elites of the crack-up of the Russian state in the wake of of this conflict. Again, the fact that uh, localized cultures have persisted so long and in the face of such uh, repression and corruption and all the all the things that we've talked about sort of raises the question of of whether <laughs> uh, you know that everybody would be a lot healthier without being governed from Moscow. Uh, that they you know a place like Kazan would be able to stand on its own two feet. Its natural sort of geographic orientation is along the Volga rather than directly to Moscow. And so there there are, you know, the, the fact of the Russian Empire has glossed over so much for so long that especially Western elites have a hard time imagining what the world would be like. And they again they 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 dread that. But um, as we talk about, you know, again, sort of all these disparate subjects which sort of add together to call the uh, you know eternity of the Russian Empire into question. Yeah, one has to ask, and particularly from a Tatar point of view, whether you know, uh, if not the you know crackups can be violent, crackups can be peaceful. But another dissolution, particularly one like the dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, is something to be wished for rather than dreaded. It's a very difficult question, it's, but at the same time very interesting and pretty much uh, being discussed uh, very often. Of course, uh, there is also a scary scenario. Some are even frightened to consider this option, you know, thinking or saying that uh, it would just uh, lead to the big blood and, you know, violence and uh, the results are uh, rather murky. And by saying this, I think they use it, and it's being used actually, to appease the aggressor and to justify the need of these peace negotiations with Putin, you know, saying we have to talk to Putin, otherwise the Russia will become, you know, the big uh, blood field. And essentially saying that if the West doesn't stop supporting Ukraine, it would lead to the breakup of Russia. And this talk again starts around this. But breakup doesn't necessarily mean collapse. And there can be plenty of consequent forms as a real federation, or some confederation, even I, I would see kind of protectorates for some territories. Be the main thing here is just not to run from this problem. The problem is there. And the main problem, the main issue here is not the Russian military power itself, which now threatens its neighbors. It's merely the military power is derivative that comes from the primary source of, uh, of all which is the Russian authoritarianism, the main source of Russian expansionism. And uh, aggression, bullying and threatening the neighbors. And we have to ask ourselves how to deal with this authoritarian power. Should it be dealt primarily with all others? I mean, and we have to understand that all others are just a product of this. And you can't go around saying 
go around this problem saying that uh, it's really dangerous to to do something with Russia, let's keep it, as it was actually, it was the main thought in the 90s, I mean, President Bush uh, Sr., he, his, the main fear was about the nuclear capacity kept in, in and the keep the Soviet Union itself, even after the uh, Yeltsin, Kravchuk and Shushkevich signed this uh, Bilovich uh, agreement, he tried to persuade them to keep the country united. So if we know what happened in 30 years afterwards. The problem didn't disappear, it, it just came with a, in, a, in a higher scale, so there should be some other uh, recipe to deal with this. And uh, it's clear, actually, that uh, there is a need to disperse this, uh, this power which produces this, uh, the, the expansionism and the military bullying, uh, threats. And what, what is interesting, what, what shows the Putin's case, the instability not only nearby orders, but also worldwide. Just it's, it's enough to see what's going on in Africa now. Uh, the question here is, uh, when the Western expert community, as well as politicians, will come to a deeper, more detailed understanding of the phenomenon called Russian, this Russian destructive expansionism. That kind of forums I mentioned, they, they at least help to start talking about this. So far, it was like taboo issue, not only in Russia, but also among Russian experts uh, in, in, in the West about the, the future of Russian Federation. But uh, again, I mean, we probably should be realistic in this. I mean, the, we already tried one way in 90s. Well, it worked out for Baltic states, I would say, but didn't work out for even Ukraine, not definitely for Central Asians, because we have a big problem over there between them, as well as with the growing uh, influence from China. And uh, of course, I mean, only Russia itself or Russian opposition or Russian people cannot deal with this uh, themselves. There should be some kind of international effort just to help to these processes like it happened again during, I mean, after the end of uh, World War One. even, I mean, there should be probably kind of, you know, Versailles conference, something like this. Uh, the case of Czechoslovakia shows us that it works out uh, if it's done uh, with uh, good knowledge and expertise. And in this sense, I would just welcome all the attempts by the uh, Western experts to try to understand more the Russians' nature, not only thinking or having in mind Moscow or St. Petersburg, but also different regions, which almost all of them have their own distinctive, I mean, distinctions, uh, differences, name Kaliningrad region or Far East or Siberia or our region, for example, Volga region where Tatarstan and Bashkortostan are located, Northern Caucasus. So this, this, this is my answer to you. <laughs> you know, uh, Rim, it's, you're right that this has been very much of a taboo. And I feel that with the war, it's becoming, of course, with the full-scale war, it's becoming, of course, less of a taboo, but still very much is. Most of the conversations I've had about this were private conversation, not conversations, not public ones. People don't feel 
even people with a stake, um, uh, a direct stake, uh, and community stake, really, um, like you, most of the time don't feel comfortable talking about these things. And I don't think there's a lot of interest, deep interest and understanding for the plight of these communities in the West as much as there should be. So I'm very grateful for you to bring up these things um, towards the end of the podcast. I'd love to go on for another hour but we leave it <laughs> we leave it as food for thought here one more kind of small thing that I wish we could have talked about but um, I think it's kind of illustrating uh, in very concrete terms what you're talking about uh, in terms of how the how the war is affecting the um, the community and that is uh, I think your service and we'll link to that in the in the show notes has in detail reported about this, how there is now production facilities in and around uh, uh, Tatarstan to produce drones and how children are being um, recruited and the environment in which they're working um, that is dangerous, not just psychologically, but also physically with chemicals, etc. Um, that is now really affecting to me um, is an illustrative example of how this is affecting um, societies and, and communities in and around um, Tatarstan. So I'll leave it at that and I'll say thank you, um, Rim, so much for joining us today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. From me, Yulia Joja, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Balibur Hodge. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front Podcast. To stay up to date with us, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod, one word, and sign up for a newsletter included in the show notes for this episode. If you can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.